Well, thank you, Adam, and uh, it is a real privilege for me to get to be here with you this morning. I had the privilege way back at the beginning when it was just a Bible study here in Kingsburg to come up and teach a couple times, and so to get the opportunity to come back and see the church growing and vibrant is just such a thrill for me personally, so thank you for letting me come and be with you this morning. And it really is a thrill for my wife as well to get to come and see Renee and uh, Adeline. And so we are just thrilled to be up here. Adam told me when we were talking on the phone that you are in Matthew right now, Matthew 13 and 14, I think, and that you're going through a series on kingdom living. And I wanted to pick up a little bit on that series, kingdom living. We're not going to be going to the book of Matthew this morning, but we are going to be talking about something that fits into the concept of kingdom living because kingdom living is a perspective that changes the way we view everything in this life. When we are focused on the kingdom and on the king living for Christ, it changes everything about who we are, about what we pursue, our priorities, our perspective, our purpose. I appreciate it even this morning in the worship service so far, the emphasis on kingdom living, the worship team through music leading us in these songs that exalt Christ, and then the scripture reading emphasizing the sovereignty of God even over our plans in James 4, and then to hear from David Torres and the experience that his family is going through right now with that trial. Kingdom living is what makes the difference. And when we come and hear something like that and we come away with hope rather than with despair, the difference is that we have a kingdom mindset. This morning, I do want to bring to you a message of hope from the scriptures. And I'm going to do so in perhaps an unusual way because I'd like to begin by talking about the topic of death. Death is not perhaps the subject we would think of first and foremost when we think about hope, when we think about happiness and joy and a perspective that is optimistic. And yet when we have that kingdom perspective, that kingdom living mindset, that fearless living that accompanies Christians who have their hope and faith in Jesus Christ, we can talk about death in a way that is encouraging and that brings us great confidence and hope. It was uh, just over a month ago on January 12th that a massive earthquake hit Haiti. You've been watching the news, you know the accounts. A month later, on February 10th, the Haitian government reported a confirmed number of deaths at 230,000 confirmed fatalities. Just yesterday, an 8.8 magnitude earthquake hit the capital city of Chile. And so far, more than 300 people have died and the death toll is still rising. Stories like that are reminiscent of the major earthquake that caused a huge tsunami back in December of 2006 in Indonesia. The earthquake and tsunami together killed over 250,000 people. 
These, of course, are major global catastrophes. And sometimes when we think about death, we think about these major catastrophic events. But the sobering truth is that we are confronted with the reality of death every single day. Every time you pick up a newspaper or turn on the evening news or visit your favorite Internet news website, you find death very frequently on the front page. It's all around us. It is inescapable. My guess would be that in this congregation, even there are many of you who have experienced the loss of loved ones and have come to feel the pain of death. And of course, we know that if Christ tarries, each one of us will face death ourselves at the end of this life. So this morning for our time together, I would like us to consider the topic of death. And in speaking about death, I would like to encourage you with the hope of the scriptures. It was Moses who in Psalm 90 asked God to teach us to number our days. It was the author of Hebrews who said that it is appointed for man once to die and then comes the judgment It was the famous Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, who resolved to think every single day of his death and to live his life in accordance with the fact that one day he would stand before Christ. It's interesting to note that according to some statistics I found, over 150,000 people die every day on average around the world. Think about that, 150,000 souls enter eternity every single day. That's about 15 times the size of the population of Kingsburg. Every single day marching into eternity. If you average that out, it's 1.8 souls every second going to Meet their maker. Other statistics tell us that the average lifespan in the United States for men is about 75 years old. For women, about 80 years old. And so uh, just to put that into perspective for us this morning, if you take your current age and subtract 75 or 80, whether you're male or female, you can get a rough estimate if you're average on how much time you have left before you too go to meet the one who made you to stand before Christ. Most people don't like to talk about death. It's a subject that, from a worldly perspective at least, is considered discouraging something that causes dismay and despair, and rightly so, because without Christ, death is the great enemy, and what awaits those who are without Christ on the other side of the grave is something that is not something to look forward to. But for those of us who are Christians, we have no reason to fear death. And I'll be the first to admit to you this morning that the fear of death sometimes creeps into my own heart, I'm sure it does for you as well. But pretty much any time I get on an airplane, I'm tempted to fear death. 
I understand Bernoulli's principle and the idea that the air going underneath the wing moves faster than the air going over the top or something like that. I may have it backwards, but it creates a vacuum which creates lift and you have thrust. And, but still, the thought of this like 80-ton metal contraption that kind of looks like a ginormous bird flying up into the sky 30,000 feet or so and then landing safely several thousand miles later, it just doesn't seem right. And so sitting on the runway as we're ready to take off, there are times when I'm tempted to fear death. I think all of us know what this is like. We get that uh, small pain in our chest and we suddenly wonder if we're going to have a heart attack or Maybe we think, oh, no, maybe we have cancer and the fear of some hidden disease causes us to be anxious. Maybe we have a close call on the freeway. Somebody else is texting or talking on their cell phone. It's not you, of course. It's the other person. We're all afraid of the the big one, that earthquake that might hit California and cause devastation. Or maybe it's the fear of potential terrorist attack. Whatever it is, we all know what it means to fear death. And this is something that, to a certain extent, is a God-given gift because the fear of death prevents us from doing all sorts of foolish things like running in front of trains or jumping off of buildings. But there can be a sense in which the fear of death gets so great in our own minds that we fear death more than we fear the Lord. And when we get to that point that fear of death has moved from being something that maybe is a healthy survival instinct to being something that is actually a sinful idol in our hearts. The truth is, as Christians, we do not need to fear death. In fact, we are commanded not to fear death. Jesus said in Luke 12, 4, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Philippians 1, 21, To live is Christ and to die is gain. The author of Hebrews said that Jesus came to this earth that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. On and on and on. We could read many, many passages in both the New and Old Testaments that encourage and exhort us not to fear death because the one whom we are to fear has conquered death on our behalf. And so we don't fear death because Christ has conquered death for us. This morning, I would like to look at a particular text of Scripture that brings this out, and it's found in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles this morning, if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll see in this passage the Apostle Paul explaining the hope that he has in the midst of the reality of his own impending death. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As you're turning there, I'd like to read you part of a letter that was written some 50 years ago to a well-known radio evangelist of the mid-1900s. His name was Charles Fuller, 
and he was preaching a sermon on the topic of heaven. He was going to be preaching on that sermon this upcoming Sunday. And during the week, because it had been announced what his sermon topic was, one of his radio listeners sent him a letter. This particular man had a terminal disease and he was soon to die. In fact, he thought he would probably die before he was able to hear that message on the next Sunday. Listen to the letter that he wrote. He said, Next Sunday, you are to talk about heaven. I am interested in that land because I have held a clear title to a bit of property there for over 55 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me without money and without price, but the donor purchased it for me at a tremendous sacrifice. It is not a vacant lot. Termites can never undermine its foundations, for they rest upon the rock of ages. Fire cannot destroy it. Floods cannot wash it away. No locks or bolts will ever be placed upon its doors. For no vicious person can ever enter that land where my dwelling stands. There is a valley of deep shadow between the place where I live in California and that to which I shall journey in a very short time. I cannot reach my home in the city of God without passing through the dark valley of shadows. But I am not afraid because the best friend I ever had went through the same valley alone long ago and drove away all the gloom. He has stuck by me through thick and thin since we first became acquainted 55 years ago, and I hold his promise in printed form never to forsake nor to leave me alone. He will be with me as I walk through the valley of shadows, and I shall not lose my way when he is with me. I hope to hear your sermon on heaven next Sunday from my home, but I have no assurance that I shall be able to do so. My ticket to heaven has no date marked for the journey, no return coupon, and no permit for baggage. Yes, I am ready to go and may not be here while you are talking next Sunday, but I shall meet you there someday. That's a great letter. Because in that letter, here we have just a lay person, a faithful Christian, an elderly gentleman writing to this evangelist, saying to him, my hope is not in this life. I have nothing left. I'm soon to depart but my hope is in Christ. Is that your perspective? Is that my perspective when we think about this life, knowing how temporary it is? Well, the good news is, of course, as Christians, as believers, we are called to have that kind of hope. We are not like the rest of the world who have no hope, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Paul brings that same perspective to bear in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. Let's read it together. Verses 1 to 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, at least the second letter that we have. He probably wrote a couple additional letters that are not recorded for us in Scripture. But the Holy Spirit saw fit to include in the canon these two letters. And it's in the second letter where we get a really deep, profound, personal look at the life of the Apostle Paul. This is perhaps the most personal of all of his epistles because he is writing to those whom he knows very well. It's a group of people for whom he helped plant that church there in Corinth. And yet false teachers have come into the congregation and they're accusing Paul of being a false teacher or at least being a teacher who has bad motives, evil motives. And Paul's defending his ministry and his apostleship to those whom he was instrumental in leading to Christ. He's heartbroken, you can imagine, in having to do this. And the emotion really seeps out of this letter as Paul writes about his own ministry and his perspective in ministry. And yet, in spite of the betrayal that he feels to the people to whom he's writing, in spite of the way in which they've sinned against him and they will be restored to him as we see later in this letter, But in spite of all of that, Paul finds his hope and his certainty, his confidence, not in how these other people, the Corinthians, are treating him, but instead by looking to Christ. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, we see that Paul says that he does not lose heart. And in chapter 4, verse 16, he does not lose heart. Paul, why don't you lose heart in ministry? Well, he's going to tell us in chapter 5. It's because the reason he's doing this is because he's looking beyond this life, beyond the earthly tent, which is this life, to the heavenly home and reward that awaits him in heaven. Look at what he says in the last three verses of chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. He says, so we do not lose heart in spite of all of these trials and afflictions that he's facing. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That perspective is the same perspective that man had who wrote to Charles Fuller that wonderful letter we read earlier. It's the perspective that characterizes every believer who has his eyes set on Christ. Because the things of this earth grow strangely dim when we turn our eyes upon Jesus. And Paul knew that an eternal weight of glory was waiting for him if he would be faithful in the race here and now. He was not living for this momentary light affliction. If this life is all that there is, Paul was a fool. But Paul knew that there was more to come and he was living for eternity. Now, in this text, in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us the reasons why he is not afraid of death. And these stem from his eternal perspective. And if you're taking notes this morning, what we're going to have are two reasons, 
two reasons why we are not afraid to die. Two reasons the Christian does not need to fear death. And these are going to be found in verses 1 to 5. We're going to spend most of our time there. And then in the few minutes that remain, after we look at those two reasons, we'll find three results that should affect the way that we live in light of the reality that Christ has conquered death. So two reasons in verses 1 to 5, and then three results in verses 6 through 10. The first reason is this, and it's found right there in verse 1, the third word, It's the main verb of verse 1. It's the word no. The first reason we do not fear death is because we know what happens after we die. If you were to ask unbelievers, why do most people fear death? It's because for them it is the great unknown. But for us who love Christ and who have his promise In printed form, we know what happens after death. The word know here speaks of assurance based on fact. It's a word that occurs in the New Testament over 600 times. It speaks of knowing, but not just knowing in an intellectual sense, but knowing with a sense of confidence as to the truthfulness of what it is that you know. It's to know for sure. We know, and there is absolutely no question about the veracity of what it is that we know, because as we'll see in a moment, that knowledge is based on the promise and work of God himself. This is the same word, the word know, that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 1.12, where he says, For I know whom I have believed and and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. It's the same word that John uses in 1 John 3, 2, when he says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And so we know what happens when this earthly tent, a metaphor for Paul's own physical body and this physical life, when this earthly tent is destroyed, we know what will happen next. I think it's really cool in this verse that Paul uses the metaphor of a tent because Paul was a tent maker. And if there was anybody who knew firsthand that tents wear out and need to be repaired and stitched up or sometimes discarded altogether and replaced, it would be a tent maker. And Paul was a tent maker, and this is my own glorified imagination, but I think perhaps Paul, between 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 5, maybe he took a little writing break, went over and had to stitch up some tents because that's what he did on the side in his ministry. Maybe he didn't do it while he was writing this letter, but certainly within the context of what he was doing, Paul knew about tents, and he knew that tents do not last. Tents are supposed to be temporary. Paul may have also had in mind some of the imagery of the Old Testament tabernacle. The tabernacle was temporary. It was replaced by the temple, which was permanent. Tents are temporary. They're replaced by buildings, which are permanent. And Paul's using this as a metaphor to speak of our current 
physical bodies which are temporary. When we die, these bodies go into the ground and they decay. But when Christ returns, we will receive a resurrected body, a resurrection body which is eternal and which will last forever. And so Paul is making a comparison here between the tent, which gets torn to pieces and finally is discarded, and the building which is built to last. As Christians, our hope is based on the promise that, yes, our temporary earthly dwellings will decay and will finally be discarded in the grave. But one day our hope is such that we will be with Christ in heaven. And when we come back with him, when he comes to establish his kingdom on the earth, we will receive permanent, eternal resurrection bodies, which will last forever and in which we will worship him and fellowship with him forever. Now, if you want a great glimpse into what your resurrection body is going to be like, you can find it in 1 Corinthians 15. We're not going to turn there this morning, but sometime when you have opportunity, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul details what it will be like to have a resurrection body. As Christians, as believers in Christ, We know that based on his sacrifice on the cross, that we've been granted eternal life through him, that death for us is not the end, it's just the beginning. It's the beginning of heavenly life and heavenly joy, a purified, righteous existence of eternal rest from sin of perfect worship. It'll include our resurrection body, fellowship with the saints, singing praise songs with the angels, and for all of eternity, getting to worship our Lord and Savior face to face. Another passage we don't have time to turn to this morning is the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. After you finish reading 1 Corinthians 15 sometime this week, turn to the last two pages of your Bible, unless you have maps and an appendix, uh, the last two pages of text, Revelation 21 and 22, and read about the eternal state that awaits those who have put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Your future is spelled out for you, your eternal destiny delineated for you in the last two chapters of the Bible. And you'll find in chapter 22, verses 3 to 5, that you, if you believe in Christ this morning, you are written about in Scripture because it talks about the future heavenly saints serving Christ and worshiping Him in glory for all of eternity. Your destiny as a believer is to live forever with Him. You know, in thinking about our lives here, we tend to do financial planning or perhaps estate planning or perhaps you have a list of goals that you want to accomplish before you die, a a to-do list of things that you'd like to do. Or maybe you think of what your life is going to be like 10 or 15 years ahead. But from a Christian perspective... Have you ever stopped and wondered what your life is going to be like? Not 10 years from now, not 15 years from now, not 50 years from now, but 1,000 years from now? Or 10,000 years from now? Or a million years from now? 
You say, well, that's silly. I'm going to be dead. Well, no, you won't be dead. Your body will be in the grave. This body will be in the grave, probably long gone. But you will be very much alive in a resurrected glory, worshiping around the throne of heaven. We read from Revelation 5 earlier this morning. That is your future, Christian. And you need not fear death because we know that that is our destiny. Now you ask, well, how do, how do we know for sure? How do we know for sure that that really is the hope and expectation, the confidence that we can have as Christians? Well, I think Paul gives us the answer even here in this passage If you look back at chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, we'll see that it's through the resurrection power of Christ that we have this power, specifically in verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So we're empowered by God with the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead. And then in verse 5 of chapter 5, we see that it was God who prepared us for this very thing. So the eternal purposes of God the Father are at stake here. And then at the end of verse 5 in chapter 5, we see that he has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The whole Trinity is at work here in securing your future as a believer. It's the resurrection power that was given to the Son. It's the eternal purpose of the Father. And it's the guarantee of the Spirit. And we can know for sure with 100% absolute confidence that we have hope after death because God himself, all three members of the Trinity, guarantee Our hope is sure. In fact, the word guarantee there is used at the end of verse 5. And it's the word, it comes from the world of commerce. It's a, a word that is used to refer to a pledge or a down payment that would guarantee that the full amount would be subsequently paid. And so the Holy Spirit is often spoken of as a pledge or a guarantee. We have the Holy Spirit and he is the guarantee or the proof of purchase So that we know that we do indeed belong to God. Our world uses the word hope in many different ways. When the weatherman says there's a 75% chance of good weather tomorrow, we say, well, we hope that he's right because we want to do stuff outside. When somebody goes to the store and buys a lottery ticket, they have like a one in nothing chance of winning or 50 million, whatever it says. But they hope, they hope that they're going to win. When we as Christians say that we hope in God, what makes our hope different than the hope in the weatherman or the hope in the lottery ticket? I would suggest to you that the difference is the object of our hope. Hope is only as good as its object. When you hope in a used car salesman, and I apologize if there are any here, But when you hope in somebody who perhaps has the reputation that sometimes characterizes used car salesmen, you do so with a degree of uncertainty and doubt because you know that sometimes the reputation is a little bit shady. 
Thank you. But when we hope in God, God is absolutely 100% perfect. He has the power. He has the wisdom. He has the love to accomplish the promises that he's given to us. And as it says many times in the New Testament, we know that God cannot lie. Our hope as Christians is 100% certain because the God in whom we hope is 100% trustworthy. And so when we hope in God, it's altogether categorically different than any other context in which we might hope because God is the only one who is absolutely certain. Well, we could talk about that for a long, long time because God's character and trustworthiness is infinite, but we need to move on to point number two. And it's right there in verse two, and it's repeated in verse four. It's the main verb in these verses, and it's the verb groan, groan. You see, we, we need not fear death. We can have hope because, number one, we know for absolute certain what is going to happen after death. And we know what God has promised to us and we cling to those promises. We know it. And secondly, we groan. We long for it. We want it. We anticipate it. This word for groan is a word that includes the idea of agony mixed with anticipation. It's not the groaning of your favorite sports team not making it to the playoffs. It's not that kind of groaning. It's not the groaning of a minor inconvenience or setback you may have experienced. No, this is a deep, profound groaning of agony over your current state and anticipation for the glory that will come. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, we see the same word used to speak of the groaning of childbirth, the agony and anticipation of that, the groaning of mortal conflict, and even the groaning of deep personal tragedy and trial. And it's used to speak of Job and all of the trials that he went through. He groaned. And you'll see that Paul here in verse 2 is talking about his present condition, the tent in which he dwells. And then he offsets that and contrasts that with the longing he has for the heavenly dwelling. And so it's the agony that comes from the sin and sorrow that he deals with on a daily basis, combined with and contrasted with the hope and anticipation he has for the glory he will experience in heaven. And isn't it true that we long for heaven most deeply and most profoundly when we ourselves are going through some sort of deep personal trial? Why is it? Why is it that we don't long for heaven with that same intensity all of the time? I think it's because the groaning of anticipation is heightened in the groaning of agony. But the hope is that for all of us, We suffer in this life. We deal with temptation in this life. Sorrow and heartbreak in this life. The anticipation is that there is a life to come for which we groan. And so in verses 1 to 5, we have those two truths. We know and we groan. And so we do not fear death because we know what comes after. And we do not fear death because 
in a sense, we look forward to it. Not the death part, but the transition part from this life to a life of glory in the next. Now, just very, very briefly, I would like to mention three results. And I wish we had time to explore these in more detail this morning, but I'll just give them to you quickly. Three results, and these are found in verses 6 through 10. Number one is that when we have a right perspective on death, knowing what comes after and groaning for heaven, number one, that reality, that perspective changes our mindset. It changes our mindset, and we see that in verses 6 to 8. It changes us from being cowards to having courage. It's in verse 6. It changes us from walking by sight to walking by faith. It's in verse 7. It changes us from longing to stay here and makes us those who long to go to where Christ is. That's in verse 8. It changes our mindset completely. We think about this life completely different. A second result, a second result, not only does it change our mindset, it also changes our mission. This is in verse 9. You'll notice the word aim is used there in verse 9. We make it our aim. That word aim comes from two Greek words that means the love of honor. And most people have aims that are for the love of their own honor. Ambition is another word that's sometimes used in this verse. But for Christians, we have an aim that is for the love of the honor of Christ. And so we aim to please him because we know that this whole life, that our purpose and reason for being here is to glorify him. And that one day we will stand before him to give an account and assure as I am standing before you here this morning, you will one day stand before Christ. That changes how you live. It changed how the Apostle Paul lived. It changed his aim. And then verse 10 changes our mindset. It changes our mission. And finally, it changes our motivation in verse 10. It changes our motivation. And Paul there in verse 10 talks about standing before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. This was the same word that was used to speak of Olympian athletes. Standing before the judges and being rewarded for what they did. And I'm sure all of you have been watching the Winter Olympics. My family's been watching the Winter Olympics and enjoying that, seeing the speed of the downhill skiers, the finesse of the uh, skaters on the ice, uh, seeing the hockey match. In fact, I think there's a, a big hockey match coming up today, right? And uh, then you have, of course, the insanity of the bobsled. We were watching a little bit of that yesterday where guys kept flipping over and going down the track on their heads. And uh, I noticed even in your bulletin this morning that uh, Pastor David had written an article about this, which I found very encouraging because I agree with him. The insanity of spending four years of your life every waking moment just so that you have an opportunity to stand on a platform and receive a medal. And how many of those athletes don't even get a bronze medal through the decades of attempts that they make to go to the Olympics for that one fleeting moment of glory? And yet what, a, what an example and a rebuke they are for us 
when we have an unfading, eternal crown of glory awaiting us for our faithfulness, and we don't, we don't put in nearly as much discipline, effort, diligence as those Olympic athletes. Well, when we think about death and life in light of heaven, it changes the motivation because we know that one day we will stand before Christ to give an account for those things that we do, whether good or worthless. So, the reasons we don't fear death, because we know what happens and because we groan for eternity. The results changes how you think, it changes what you do, and it changes why you do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to come and I hope be an encouragement to this lovely congregation of people. Father, what a joy it is for me to be here and to get to fellowship with them and worship you alongside of them. Thank you for this example of the Apostle Paul who did not fear death. We see that lived out in his life, the sacrifices, persecution that he endured for your sake. He ran the race, keeping his eyes on Christ, knowing that one day he would stand before you and wanting nothing else than to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, may we have that same motivation. May we not give in to the temptation to fear death, but may we rather look forward to it because we know that looking forward to death means looking forward to heaven, and heaven means much more to us than anything here on this earth. Thank you for your son whom you gave to die on our behalf so that we might be privileged to call ourselves the children of God. We pray these things in his name. Amen.